1: It took a couple of days for the news to reach New York that the Declaration of Independence had been approved on the 4th of July 1776. A crowd assembled on Bowling Green at the southern tip of Manhattan, where George III sat astride his horse in the manner of a Roman emperor. They used ropes to pull the monument down. A bit more than a century later on, on the 4th of July 1884, the US ambassador in Paris took delivery of a 150-foot statue of the goddess Liberty. The French government would pay to ship it to New York Harbour. The idea for the gift came from Édouard de Laboulaye, president of the French Anti-Slavery Society. That same year, the first statue of Robert E. Lee, the Confederate commander in the Civil War, went up in New Orleans. America is still arguing about statues. With 122 days to go, This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prudeau, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, does raising monuments really lead to political change? The 4th of July holiday feels different this year Americans are worried about celebrations spreading COVID-19. And they say they are less proud of being American than at any time since Gallup started asking them. It's a sense of shame partly expressed in campaigns to remove monuments to old racists that began in the South, but has spread far beyond. President Trump says a mob is trying to vandalize our history. Is this just another phase in cancel culture, as some conservatives argue, or an omen of political realignment? With me as ever to discuss all of this is Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York Bureau Chief, and John Fasman, The Washington Correspondent. Charlotte, Donald Trump is celebrating the 4th of July with fireworks at Mount Rushmore. What are you going to be up to?
2: We are having family Olympics on July 4th, which will involve crab races and freeze dancing. So obviously I've been training for weeks, but it should be fun.
1: What does freeze
3: dancing involve?
2: Is this an American thing? Have you been deprived of freeze dancing your whole life?
3: I don't even know if it's an American thing because I've never heard of it either.
2: Oh, come on. Yes, you have. You're thinking of something more complicated than what I'm about to describe, which is someone plays music. I have young children, you have to remember. Someone plays music and you dance like a maniac and then someone pauses the music and you have to suddenly freeze. And if you're still moving, then you're out. So this was not on the schedule for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, but will be included in my family's version.
3: It sounds like it should be included in Tokyo. That sounds great. John Fasman, what about you? So uh, last week, as we're here on the program, I was in Virginia, and we drove home through Pennsylvania, which has a wonderful law that you can basically buy just short of professional grade fireworks, as long as you don't live in Pennsylvania. So I'm going to set off a bunch of fireworks in my backyard. I can't wait. I'm more excited than my son's. So John,
1: in addition to celebrating the 4th, you'll also be celebrating the publication of your cover briefing on Joe Biden, which is in this week's Economist. And meanwhile, there have been some big developments in another story you've been working on for a while. Earlier this week, a giant crane plucked a statue of Stonewall Jackson, the Confederate General, from its place on Monument Avenue in Richmond, Virginia.
3: Yeah, Richmond, as you probably know, was the capital of the Confederacy for a while. And it's now at the front line of the debate over how America's history of racism is remembered. I wanted to go after protesters toppled a monument to Jefferson Davis last month, and Davis, of course, was president of the Confederacy, and he was also memorialized on Richmond's Monument Avenue. I took a socially distanced walk along the beautiful tree line boulevard with Jeff Shapiro, who writes both for us and for the Richmond Times Dispatch.
4: Monument Avenue, which runs east-west through the heart of the city is this gracious boulevard of grand houses, an address that Oscar Wilde might uh, say inspires confidence. And along its grassy median strip stand five monuments erected between 1890 and the late 1920s that uh, pay homage to the deities of the Confederacy.
3: As we walked, we were both wearing masks, so his voice sounds a bit muffled. He told me that going up at the time they did, the monuments were central to the narrative of the Jim Crow era. Under the laws of that time, African Americans in the South were forced to attend different schools. They risked lynching if they tried to register to vote, and they were largely excluded from all but menial jobs.
4: What this iconography is all about is a reassertion of white supremacy. Whites used their political muscle to strip African Americans of what little they had achieved as a result of emancipation, and in effect re-enslaved Southern blacks. These icons are intended largely as a reminder of that.
3: So these statues have naturally become a focus for the protests against racial injustice.
4: Fast forward to the 21st century, this is a city in which the young are ascendant. Uh, This is a city that is now fully multi-cued. And following events such as the George Floyd killing, the tolerance for these symbols has faded and has faded very fast.
3: I found the support for pulling them down came from some unlikely places
4: my great-great-grandfather is named Edmund Ruffin, and he was purported to be the guy that fired the first shot in the Civil War.
3: (laughs) It's pretty crazy. Ned Ruffin now lives on Monument Avenue. You can hear in the background a fountain. It's a beautiful house with a beautiful courtyard. He told me that until recently, he favored keeping the statues with labels to put them in historical context.
4: I thought that that would be great, right? And invite more people to come to Richmond because pe- a lot of people travel here to learn about the history great opportunity to, to teach and educate and and then we had uh, George Floyd and I Realized wow, I've got it wrong There's a lot of hurt. How could I ever say that? I know what's right? I'm a white guy and I did not appreciate
3: the pain that's associated with all of these statues Ralph Northam, Virginia's governor, said he wants to remove the Robert E. Lee statue, which is the most prominent of them all. But that's been stalled by several lawsuits. Julian Hayter was on a committee that looked into what to do about the Monument Avenue statues. He's a professor of history at the University of Richmond. And when I gave him a call, he sounded a warning about scrapping them.
0: If those statues are tucked away in a warehouse and they're melted down, it'd be a wasted opportunity to deal with what the people who built those statues intended when they built them and what happened as a result. Those monuments aren't the only artifacts to the Jim Crow system in Richmond. There's an obsolescently segregated public school system. Residential segregation, the compression of African Americans into smaller and smaller segregated enclaves. We would be remiss if we didn't use this as a point of inflection to reflect intently on all of the things that those monuments came to symbolize. Not just the lost cause, but the reclamation of public space in the name of white supremacy and how that has had a profound influence on where we're at right now.
3: The Lost Cause narrative, of course, romanticizes and idealizes the South before the Civil War. It's the narrative that rewrote history to say the Civil War was a struggle for states' rights, rather than what it really was, which is a fight to preserve slavery. Gone with the Wind, the highest grossing movie ever, is a famous example of Lost Cause propaganda. Dr. Hayter says that Monument Avenue was a deliberate bit of segregationist urban design in the same vein. He wants the statues put in a museum so that history is not forgotten a second time.
0: There are a considerable number of Americans who still believe in lost cause talking points in large part because people who promoted the lost cause were effective at institutionalizing these beliefs in the historical curriculum. We've been erasing history for a long time. It's actually rather easy to do, but I don't want to see it done here. I want us to actually have a moment where we begin to use history and historical materials to have an honest conversation about a more truthful past in a way that allows us, in some ways, to finally reconcile over this tortured racial history that we just can't seem to overcome.
3: A state law came into effect in Virginia this week, giving cities the ability to remove Confederate monuments. But Jeff Shapiro, who showed me around Monument Avenue, thinks their power to offend is already blunted.
4: We have seen remarkable displays, a crazy quilt of of graffiti on many of these monuments that I think make them far more approachable, that humble them, and have made these statues welcoming places for people they were not intended to draw, people they were largely intended
1: to intimidate. Charlotte, what we're seeing now in terms of statues of Confederate generals in particular going down is part of this sort of slow reckoning with the legacy of the Civil War. There was a real acceleration in statues being taken down in 2015, after 2015, when Dylan Roof, a white supremacist teenager, went on a shooting spree in the Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. And and then you saw some state houses take down Confederate monuments and Confederate flags. So this is a process that's been underway for a little while, but it's really sped up recently.
2: Yeah, it's worth noting that since 2015, there have also been a lot of different steps taken to try to preserve the monuments. So North Carolina passed a law to make it harder to remove statues in 2015. Alabama did the same in 2017. Um, This was a trend you saw across southern states. And the Unite the Right march in Charlottesville, which you'll remember was when crowds were chanting, among other things, Jews will not replace us. That was to oppose the removal of a statue of General Lee in Charlottesville. And so you do see this fight gaining momentum in recent years. And I think it really has to do with an acknowledgment that racism and the legacy of the Civil War is not something that happened 150 years ago, but is something that is very alive and well. Albeit in a different form in 2020, and I think it's that acknowledgement that is fueling the current wave of support for removing these monuments.
1: John Fazman, I think we can all agree that in 2020, people like Lee and Jackson and Nathan Bedford Forrest and Ben Tillman and all the rest of them shouldn't be venerated. The question is what to do with those statues. They they can be put in museums. You can put plaques around them, giving more historical context, or I'm rather intrigued by Jeff Shapiro's suggestion that you leave them up and let them be painted pink and covered in graffiti. What do you favor doing with those Confederate statues that decorate Monument Avenue?
3: I'm sympathetic to Jeff's view because the Robert E. Lee statue really is an extraordinary piece of public art now in a way that it wasn't before. But I think that that Dr. Hader is probably right. I think you want to see those statues preserved in a museum with an explanation of who put them up, when, why, what they did. Certainly in Richmond, those statues were sort of an essential part of urban planning to make that area around Monument Avenue a very fancy, exclusive white suburb. And so I think you'd like to see, as Charlotte pointed out, you'd like to see those statues preserved in a museum in context explaining what they did and what they meant.
2: Yeah. In Germany, which many people point to as an alternative way of remembering history, there's a strong argument, You know, how do you not erase history, but remember it. They acknowledge the Nazi past, of course, but they don't do it by putting Hitler on a pedestal. I always found the Stolperstein, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, but Stolperstein, which translates to stumbling stones that are um, interspersed among the cobblestones on the streets of Berlin, and they explain the name of a victim when he was sent to a concentration camp, when he or she died. And it's literally part of the fabric of the city in a way that is inescapable and reminds you in a subtle but very obvious way reminds you of the toll taken on victims. And so that's a very different way to remember the past compared with putting Nazi general on a pedestal and keeping him in the middle of a public square.
3: It's not just statues that memorialize the lost cause. A number of southern states have or had the stars and bars on their current state flag. Mississippi, I think, is the last one that still has the stars and bars on their flag. And they just this week voted for a new state flag. Georgia, where I used to live, had the stars and bars on it for a while. The governor, Roy Barnes, who took it off, lost his job because of it. They now have a flag that I think probably is not long for this world. It's based on the first flag of the Confederacy with the ring of stars in the top left corner, except Georgia's has an odd little gazebo in the middle of it. I think that's probably going too. I think, as Charlotte said, a lot of people who may have previously been sort of indifferent to the conflict are realizing that these flags really are an expression of, of hate for a lot of people and make a lot of Georgians and Mississippians feel unwelcome and should be changed.
1: It's also worth noting that though the context in America is specific to the Civil War and the Confederacy, there is a bout of a statue dethroning, deplinthing uh, going around all over the world at the moment, or all over the West at least. In Britain, we've seen a statue of Edward who who is a slave trader, come down in Bristol, There have been arguments about other statues as well. There have been similar arguments going on in Belgium and Australia. My favourite solution for what to do with statues that are no longer in favour that I've come across so far comes from Mumbai, where the city decided to take down a statue of King Edward VII of Britain and put it in the city zoo. Okay, thank you both. In a moment, we'll figure out how you decide which monuments should come down. But first, a reminder, if you're not an Economist subscriber, you're missing out. Wherever you are, you can get the best introductory offer at economist.com slash 2020 election pod. Joe Biden is on the cover this week. John has written a briefing on what kind of president he might be. The Lexington column looks at the spread of COVID in Texas. Both subjects we'll be returning to on the podcast very soon. The link for a special rate on new subscriptions is economist.com slash 2020 election pod. It's in the show notes for this episode. Princeton University announced this week it would remove President Woodrow Wilson's name from its famous policy school because of his racist views. Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, says America is an imperfect nation built by imperfect heroes. To help us work out where to draw the line in cases like these, we invited Khalil Gibran Mohammed back on the podcast. He's a professor of history, race and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School. And he started by telling me about Frederick Douglass and a speech he gave on the 4th of July, 1852.
5: Frederick Douglass was by far and away the most famous and influential abolitionist of the 19th century. He came to national attention having escaped as an enslaved person in the late 1830s. And in 1852, Douglass, who is living in Rochester, New York at the time, gives this stirring Jeremiah where he calls attention to the genius of the founding fathers for establishing these universal egalitarian principles of liberty and freedom and justice but says that the generation upon the nation now was a generation that had fallen well short of those principles. He sets the stage for articulating one of the most enduring critiques of American racism. Frederick Douglass was not so much concerned about what the Constitution and the Declaration intended. What he was so upset about was that each generation had foregone or chosen not to follow the path of the possibilities of the declaration. There's this really powerful line that he gives that is often quoted this time of year. And he says, whether we turn to the declarations of the past or to the professions of the present, the conduct of the nation seems equally hideous and revolting. America is false to the past, false to the present. And solemnly binds herself to be false to the future. He goes on to say, What to the American slave is your Fourth of July? I answer a day that reveals to him, more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim.
1: And America's going through one of its periodic moments of looking at symbols of history and reevaluating them in the light of something of an awakening about contemporary racism and the most obvious manifestation of this is the move to take statues down. Can you help us to draw a line around which statues should come down and which shouldn't? Because my experience talking to people is that a lot of Americans can get on board with the idea that it's ludicrous to have statues of Robert E. Lee or monsters like Nathan Bedford Forrest up there. But then they get nervous because they think, well, hang on, I'm fine with those guys going down, but I don't want George Washington coming down, or I don't want Thomas Jefferson coming down. Is there a sort of neat formula for assessing who should come down and who should stay up? No, there isn't a neat
5: formula. And, and the, the truth is that um, if we focus on the Confederate monuments, uh, the Confederate symbols in flags, uh, and the named government facilities and public spaces for former KKK uh, leaders and, and other white supremacists, uh, then will go a long way to solving the problem, particularly across many parts of the South and in local communities. If the notion is that there's a slippery slope, where does this end, is itself uh, an effort at a kind of form of resistance to the most obvious, which is to get rid of all the Confederate symbols and iconography in the country. If we are to anticipate where this might end with a question about George Washington as himself a slaveholder and the the nation's founding father and first president, I think that that will have to be resolved through the democratic process in terms of uh, what Americans decide. And my guess is that there will be simply counter memorials or plaques to complicate the legacy of the founding fathers rather than removal itself.
1: How important is that public debate and the actions that are taken as a result of it? Because on the one hand, we all know that symbols are important in politics and, you know, who we kind of venerate is in some sense a measure of what a society values. On the other hand, it's possible to see a movement that focuses too much on symbols at the expense of big structural changes to society policy changes, which might actually be harder and and more painful to to bring about?
5: I think the public debate is essential for precisely the terms that you've just described. When people debate racist symbols or the symbolic importance of an individual who expressed racist views in the past, you get to hear how contemporaries do or don't understand the actual history. The United States is inextricably committed to a kind of ahistoricism that gives license to its mythology of the American dream or American exceptionalism. There are few places in the world of which I'm aware uh, that have defined the fact of dreaming for a better future as the core ideology of its civic myth. So it's not that Americans don't don't appreciate a past, they only appreciate a past in the service of this myth-making. That's why Frederick Douglass is so important, because Frederick Douglass gave the nation 150 years ago an opportunity to change its myth, to close the gap between the rhetoric and the reality, to put the founding fathers back into the service of truth and reality, In a way that would fundamentally reshape the nation into a more just society.
1: Well, I fully endorse the implication there that America needs more statues of Frederick Douglass. John, let me play devil's advocate here a little bit. If the aim here is to persuade Americans to consider the continuing impact of, events that happened a long time ago, the Civil War reconstruction, you know, the building of all the institutions that upheld Jim Crow. Is that best done by taking down a statue of Stonewall Jackson, say, or by keeping it up as a reminder of that past?
3: I think that's a decision that every community needs to make for itself. I think that the meeting of a Jefferson Davis statue in a museum contextualized is very different from the meaning of a Jefferson Davis statue along the nicest street in Richmond, preserved on top of a plinth. I keep thinking about something that Jeff Shapiro told me, which is that before these demonstrations, any hint of graffiti or damage on those statues was immediately taken off and was actually news. And so you'd often see on the evening news or in the richmond newspaper a picture of a city worker usually african american scraping the graffiti off one of these statues i think keeping it up in that way is a terrible idea because it preserves the message it was put up to send putting it away in a museum with context is very different
1: i have a nagging suspicion that taking down the monuments to lee jackson whoever else is the easy bit and that once that's done a lot of people think well we've we've done our part now and desegregating schools in Richmond, say, is much, much harder. And the one thing doesn't necessarily lead to the other. And and perhaps if you're being pessimistic, you know, the one thing, tackling the symbol, is kind of a substitute for doing something um, that might require people to make some
3: real sacrifices. I think you've seen that sort of attitude come out from a lot of activists in the past couple of weeks when you've had sort of grand gestures from corporations, you know, making unavailable old episodes of the Golden Girls because the, the women appeared in dark face masks or taking off episodes of 30 Rock. All these are very easy to do. But the protests are actually about stopping police brutality and, and ending systemic racism. And that that is going to require a lot more than just taking down statues that requires a, a real reorganization of society that's going to be much more difficult than these gestures are.
2: It's interesting. Martin Luther King said, he pointed out, it doesn't cost anything to let a black person sit at a lunch counter. It does cost something to deal with poverty, his implication being that dealing with poverty is much harder. So I think you do see similar strains of that rationale at work today.
1: Okay, we'll talk more about how these debates about history translate into electoral politics in just a moment. One of the striking aspects of the Black Lives Matter protests last month was how they sparked an intense questioning of historical injustices across the country and in so many different ways. Alice Fordham is a producer for Economist Radio based in New Mexico.
6: More than 400 years ago, a rich nobleman of the Spanish Empire named Don Juan de Oñate led an expedition north from Mexico.
7: The first capital of New Spain, which is what Oñate is credited with establishing in 1598, was across the river from present-day Oque Owinge.
6: Oque is a settlement of native people who lived all over the rocky landscape in villages the Spanish called Pueblos.
7: My name is Elena Ortiz, and I am um, from Oque Pueblo. grew up in Santa Fe.
6: When the Spanish arrived here, they took control. Don Juan de Oñate was notoriously cruel. After Oñate's nephew was killed in a battle, he took revenge. Scholars have documented the killing of hundreds of native people, and people here say he mutilated some captives, amputating their feet.
7: My father told me all about Oñate, who he was, what he stood for, and this is not a man that we want to celebrate or commemorate.
6: But when Miss Ortiz was growing up in the early 90s in what is now the state of New Mexico, a statue of Oñate, magnificent astride a prancing horse, was erected just outside her pueblo. Later, another statue of him went up outside a museum in Albuquerque, the biggest city.
7: It was horrifying. It's horrifying to have that image of that man placed in front of a museum where people go and and visit and not have the real history of what he did and what he stood for.
6: When they would drive past, the family would give Oñate the finger. In 1997, one night, the statue's foot was sawn off. The perpetrators were never caught. In America, Hispanic people are often an underclass. In New Mexico, where about half the population is Hispanic, many people push against that, tracing their ancestry proudly back to Spain. But about 10% of people are native and often still face poverty and other hardships. For many of them, celebration of Spanish history feels like an insult. Ms. Ortiz has campaigned to remove the statues for years. Last month, chaotic protests swelled here, and Onyate was felled. The statue outside Oke Owinge was removed, authorities said to protect it, before a planned protest. And the one outside the museum in Albuquerque was cut down the day after a demonstration which turned violent when a counter-protester fired into the crowd. The day after, curious people slowed their cars and gathered to look at the prone statue. Most were pleased, but not everyone.
4: Well, I I, I hate to see that right there, that statue right there laying down. I hate to see that, because this is history. And we're destroying
8: history, and people can learn from it.
6: One person with a lot of practice seeing both sides of the statue's argument is state historian Rob Martinez.
8: Those were not put up to uh, celebrate the less savoury aspects of Spanish conquest and colonisation, they were put up as symbols of uh, Hispanic pride.
6: He says the celebration of Spanish heritage here actually began after the United States took the territory from Mexico in 1846 and people sought statehood.
8: The United States did not want us to be a state. We had enough people, but from about 1850 to 1900, uh, we were looked down on. We're looked at as mixed blood, uh, fanatical Catholic Mexicans and savage Indians. You know, very unflattering, unflattering things. But by the 1900s, by about 1900, 1910, there's this notion that if we're Spanish and if we descend from conquistadores, then it would be okay to let us in. Because then they're letting in European people.
6: Mr. Martinez, like many here, has mixed Hispanic and Native ancestry. He remembers the night the foot disappeared from Oñate's statue.
8: I felt, I felt bravo. And I felt, how, how dare you? <laughs> because I'm, I descend from both sides, you see what I'm saying?
6: The identity of the foot thief is still unknown, but the foot, bronze and booted, did show up at one of the protests.
9: My involvement down in Albuquerque was specifically to uh, bring the foot of Oñate to that
6: rally, okay? This is Brian Hardgroove, a musician, the bassist in the hip-hop group Public Enemy, and for years now a resident of New Mexico. His wife is Native American. A friend asked him to take the foot.
9: So uh, when he asked me to go, it was like, no question. It's karmically powerful and important that that, a black man and a Native American stand by each other in his struggle, you know?
6: He wants the power of nationwide Black Lives Matter protests to catalyze other movements.
9: Myself being a black man, this crisis, this Black Lives Matter movement, the focus is on my people specifically, but Native Americans and a whole bunch of other groups of people in this country who are getting the short end of the stick need the Black Lives Matter movement to work because they're not getting heard from.
6: Last month, a solemn celebration unfolded in the plaza of the state capital, Santa Fe. The mayor called for the removal of three more monuments and announced the formation of a commission to discuss race relations. The debate continues over New Mexico's monuments and some could yet be put back. But Ms Ortiz doubts it. And the catharsis as they disappeared was invaluable to her.
7: Feeling elated and happy and um, relieved that we finally feel heard and seen, and maybe this is a step forward from the erasure that Indigenous people have experienced in this country for 500 years. <laughs>
1: Charlotte, so statues going down in New Mexico, as well as Richmond, Virginia, and elsewhere in the US. Let's get into the politics of this. Senate Republicans have an advert out at the moment denouncing the mob for taking down statues. Donald Trump's been pretty clear on this. I think he sees it as an area where he can appeal to many American sense of patriotism and kind of nationalism and put the Democrats on the defensive, casting them as kind of self-hating Americans. What do you make of the electoral politics of what's going on with statues and flags at the moment?
2: This is an issue that is really tailor-made for Donald Trump for the Make America Great President. And Mitch McConnell has an ad that talks about how the mob is coming for our founders and our heroes. The Trump campaign very much wants to portray Joe Biden as feeble with the implication that he is sort of a bony, helpless speed bump over which the mob of radical leftists are going to rush and they're going to loot stores and tear down Monticello, et cetera. But I think it is hard. You know, Trump, even though this is an issue that, that plays well for Trump on one dimension, He said that he wouldn't approve uh, military spending if certain military bases that have Confederate names were to be renamed. And that's in a week when he is dealing with evidence that he knew that Russia was offering bounties to those who killed American soldiers in Afghanistan. And I just think there's a sense that he has his priorities wrong here. So I'm not surprised that Republicans are trying to build on this, but I also think there's probably a limit to which it will be effective.
3: As a matter of political deflection, it makes sense, right? Because every day we're talking about statues today, we're not talking about Russian bounties, or the pandemic. But I don't think the issue is as potent as Trump and the Republicans hope it is. There's a poll from June 2020 that said that only 44% of voters wanted the statues to remain standing. And that may well be a soft 44%. I mean, I can't imagine people will vote based on whether or not the president fully backs statues of Robert E. Lee to stay standing. So it's a way to get people off more damaging subjects. I don't think it's a real election issue.
2: I do think the narrow issue of whether monuments should rise or fall will not be The crucial one of the election. Nevertheless, it is part of what I do think may be a central strategy for Donald Trump, in which he wants to portray himself as a law and order president. And the idea that if Biden is elected, you will have America as you know it disappear. The heroes of America will disappear. Private health insurance will disappear. Police departments will disappear. It's part of this broader package that there's some kind of revolution brewing on the left that is going to absolutely upend the existing status quo. And that's very much what Donald Trump is about now and what he's always been about. He wants to preserve a version of America that doesn't really exist anymore. But that's been a core part of what he offers. And so going forward, as our forecast model shows, Biden has really had an enormous lead. And Fasman is too modest to uh, explain much of, of this, but he has a fantastic package in this week's issue that explains what Joe Biden stands for. We do know who he is. He's been in the public eye for so long. But where he is within the Democratic Party, what a Biden presidency might look like, all of that to bring some more substance to this idea of Joe Biden um, that Trump is trying to fabricate.
3: You saw Joe Biden at his press conference earlier this week field a question about these statues. And I think he showed his instinct for staying in the exact center very well. He said, look, I think We don't need to have statues up of people who took up arms against the United States. We don't need to memorialize traitors. But Washington and Jefferson should probably stay up. And I think that's about where most people are. I suspect that of that 44% who want Confederate statues to remain, it's probably because they feel somehow that it's the first downward bit of a slippery slope that leads to removing other statues. The fact that Biden was able to come out there and make that distinction so starkly was really helpful to him.
2: I think that the issue of monuments actually is a very good illustration of a central tension of this presidential campaign, which is that you have the Republicans and Trump in particular who want to project an idea that the America that we all know and love is at risk. And on the other side, you have Democrats pointing to the Confederate monuments as one piece of evidence that this history of racism is not something that we left behind in the past, but it's something that is very much with us today and pervades American life and what are Democrats going to do about it. And so I think that in in some ways it becomes almost a perfect little window into what is a real disagreement about what a president should be trying to achieve and what each candidate values. And so in some ways this controversy and this movement happening at the beginning of the summer in the run-up to the conventions helps to crystallize what's at stake and the arguments on each side. And we'll see the further debate fleshed out, I think, in the coming weeks as it moves beyond monuments and continues to explore questions of policing, of um, housing, of healthcare all of these issues that are very crucial to what Joe Biden wants to do as part of his future presidency, if he were to be elected. And Trump, on the other hand, saying, hold up, we don't want this radical revolution. Vote for me if you want to preserve the old America.
1: Okay, let's leave it there. It's quiz time. Earlier, I mentioned that the Statue of Liberty was a gift from France. The statue gets a mention in The Economist for the first time in October 1909 in an article about, quote, the risky sport of aviation. Which famous pioneer of flight managed to fly over the Hudson and around the Statue of Liberty that year?
3: Was it Charles Lindbergh?
2: My new strategy is just to echo what Fassman said.
3: (laughs) That's a mistake.
2: What year are we talking about? 19-what? 1909. Oh. um, Who were those brothers? Those brothers in Ohio? The The Wright Wright brothers. I think I may have been
3: early. Yeah, I think I may have been early. You've got a
2: 50-50
1: shot. Which one was it?
2: Which Wright brother? I don't know their first names. Are you kidding?
1: It was Wilbur Wright. Um, The article's mostly about Wilbur Wright's first pupil, the Comte de Lambert. Which landmark did the French aristocrat fly over to reach the highest altitude recorded at the time?
2: Yeah, it must have (laughs) John John Perdue is giving us visual cues. He's currently impersonating the Eiffel Tower, as far as I can tell from his desk. Um, Could it be the Eiffel Tower?
3: (laughs) It
1: was the Eiffel Tower. (laughs) The count got to over 1,300 feet. The Economist Paris correspondent sagely pointed out that airplane technology poses, quote, a direct challenge to the dirigible balloon. So we got that one right.
3: <laughs> Which one did we back?
1: Okay, that's it for this episode. Thanks, John. Thanks, Charlotte. Thank you. Thanks, John. If you like the podcast, please leave a rating and a star-spangled review on your podcast app, One of the big stories in Washington this week is about Russians allegedly paying bounties to kill US troops in Afghanistan. We did an episode on Donald Trump and the military a couple of weeks ago. You can go back through our feed to find that. It's called General's Strike. Well worth a listen if you missed it. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening to this episode. Stay safe. Stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.